Hello, I hope you enjoy this recording and consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, my talks are offered entirely without charge and supported by donations only. Please feel invited to stop by dharmapunksnyc.com, that's spelled with an X, to check out a chapter from my book, Unsubscribe, which arrives November 2017. And thank you. So here's my perspective. It's not the correct perspective by any means. There is no correct dharma at all. From the very beginning, even during the Buddha's life, there were different perspectives on the dharma. There was even a split in his community. And from the time of his death, there was many uh, schools that developed with different flavors and different approaches. And everywhere Buddhism has traveled, it has taken on different flavors. When it went to Tibet, it encountered the traditions of the Bon religion, which was uh, endogenous to that region, and it uh, incorporated those beliefs and became the beautiful practice of Tibetan Buddhism. And then when it went to China and Japan, it encountered the very uh, natural, uh, spontaneous, going with the flow traditions of Taoism. And it became what is now known as Zen Buddhism. And when Buddhism went to Southeast Asia, it encountered the practices of uh, Sri Lanka and Burma and Thailand, and it became the lineage that I have practiced in and studied in, uh, as well as Melissa, the Theravadan lineage. But then when Buddhism came to America, it was not only imported by peoples from Japan and Tibet and Southeast Asia, it was brought to America and most popularized here by a group of um, therapists and uh, spiritual seekers who in the 1970s just happened to be on a spiritual retreat at Bodh Gaya where they encountered a man by the name of Ramdas who just happened to be passing through and Ramdas gave them the very basics of Buddhist meditation. Ramdas himself was a therapist. And those people, by the names of Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, and on, brought it, the practice, to America in its form that is now known as uh, Vipassana, or inside meditation, and... Um, that is the rough school that uh, we're leading this retreat in. But uh, certainly my perspectives come from a very uh, psychological, secular perspective. And for me, I don't, by nature, I have never done anything simply because people tell me it's a good idea. When I got sober 23 years ago, I drove my sponsor fucking crazy. Uh, 
because I wouldn't do anything he suggested unless he told me why. Uh, it made me the least likely, I was told by many sober people, uh, individual to stay sober because I didn't have any uh, blind faith in me. And to this day, uh, my practice uh, and the way I teach is deeply grounded in Western uh, both clinical psychology and uh, neuropsychology because I don't want to simply foist something at you simply because a lot of people have done it that way. I want to present it to you in a way that I hope will make sense to Western minds who grow up with uh, Western uh, perspectives, inclinations, dispositions, and a sense of uh, wanting to have a sense of uh, the underlying mechanisms. So here we go. From birth, we have one fundamental core drive. That drive is not to discharge libidinal pleasures for catharsis, as Freud uh, believed. Uh, it's understandable that he uh, misinterpreted the infant's core drive. Uh, it's not the expression of aggression, which Freud also tended to ex uh, propose as well. The core human drive, as we've now known since the late 1950s with the advent of brilliant psychologists such as John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth and Philip Sears and the whole group, Mary Main, and those that have followed in the uh, tradition along with object relations, people like Winnicott and Bion and Fairburn, is to connect. Our core drive is to connect with others. We are a social species. We do not survive on our own. If we were birds, when we were in a startled state, our instinct would be to take flight. If we were other mammals, our instinct would be to scurry and hide or to jump into uh, water or to dig holes or to, do, to climb into our shells or to uh, rear our claws, like uh, my cats tend to do. Uh, but what our core drive is, especially if we are uh, of uh, any degree of psychological health, our core drive is to seek other people for secure attachment. Our survival from birth requires years and years of care, observation, nurturing, soothing, protection, encouragement, appreciation, and we'll talk about this mirroring, the most vital way that we attach. Our caretaking is exceptionally the caretaking needs we have is exceptionally demanding on parents. So I just want to make that known, that the uh, demands of the child 
to be at the center of parents' lives, to have its needs understood without um, resorting to any additional measures, to be understood, seen, appreciated, encouraged. Uh, as Winnicott said, uh, the child has to be a kind of grandiose king, and the parents have to, for a while, put aside their very lives and needs and essentially put their lives out of balance. So when it works, we connect for food, warmth, shelter, soothing, cleaning, changing, and again, uh, appreciation, smiles. And when we feel seen by another, especially another that can provide any of these needs for warmth, shelter, appreciation, encouragement, feeling seen is the very core base of feeling secure in the world. There is nothing that makes a human being feel more secure than expressing its state of being and being seen by another. That is the epicenter of security. So how do we communicate these states of being in infancy in a pre-verbal environment where we cannot use words. In fact, for the first three years, all of our meaningful connections that are there, or communications, I should say, are there to establish true connection are handled by one specific set of nerves. They're called the vagal vagus nerve. And they run from essentially the brain stem through the front of the face, down the throat, to the chest, and finally ending on the abdomen. When we have needs for attachment, we use the modern vagal nerve and we use facial expressions, tears, laughter, expressions of surprise, expressions of sadness. The infant connects with the mother through the facial expression. When, however, we feel deeply threatened, abandoned, rejected, the old vagal vagus cluster, which goes from the chest to the belly or the abdomen, is activated and it creates constriction in those areas. That's why when we go through a breakup, we refer to it as heartbreak, because literally the vagal vagus nerve tightens around the heart and lung area. When we go through extreme fear, that often leads to dissociation or trauma or great emotional wounds. We feel it in our stomach because the oldest core message of the vagal vagus nerve is to stop us from digestion and all of those long-term and to essentially release all those processes, which is why literally people can shit or piss themselves when they're frightened. So all of the external expressions of internal states of distress or need or anger, frustration, sadness are first felt internally as feelings and then expressed outwardly as emotions. 
That's the difference between feelings and emotions from uh, contemporary psychoanalytic perspectives is that that which I feel that you can't see is a feeling. But any expression of a feeling that you can see is an emotion. Emotions are visible signals, communications to others of my internal state of being expressing what I need. For the infant, when it is seen and mirrored, which means the mother or father sees the emotional state and if the child's frightened, mirrors it, oh, you're frightened, or sees the joy, the mother goes, yay, or the child is confused and the mother gives a confused face and then marks, that's the second part of mirroring, the mother then after mirroring and and reproducing the emotion, the mother then shows the infant that she's okay. So the baby's frightened, the mother first goes, and then smiles. And in that very simple form of communication, the child knows it is seen, understood, and that it is safe because the mother is not frightened, scared, abandoned, lonely, overwhelmed. When we are not seen, when we are not beheld by the other, it feels like annihilation. It feels to the infant like death. The infant is so right hemispheric, which is embodied, we cannot understand how powerful in our adult minds, how scary and how powerful unresolved emotional states are for an infant. An infant that feels uh, not seen, uh, not cared for, not mirrored, or uh, not reliably connected with, feels intense vulnerability, And the very first form of anxiety, annihilation anxiety, stems from this phase. And the second great form of anxiety, there are four forms of anxiety, the second being uh, separation anxiety results. The child's greatest fear becomes being separated from that which gives security. Now, if there's two parents, that's great. It alleviates, or if there's an entire family that alleviates the separation anxiety. Feeling unseen by six months of age, an infant will begin to develop what Winnicott called a false self. We can already see at that point the infant who is frustrated or agitated and has not had its frustration or agitation seen, it will begin to change its emotion, amplifying the emotion to crying hysteria in an attempt to be seen. So the child is abandoning its true authentic emotional state for another state to be seen. That's what Winnicott said at the beginning of the false self. And you can only guess how that plays out through a lifetime when we don't feel seen. When the infant feels bored or lonely, it will amplify, if it's not seen for its boredom and its fidgetiness, it will start to amplify its emotions to agitation. A frightened child, when it is frightened, I mean, a frightened child, when it's not seen, will amplify that state into an outright 
panic, frozen, dissociated state of overwhelm. So as you can see, when we are not seen, we will start to amplify our emotional states. We will abandon our core, authentic state of being, and we will resort to any measure to be beheld and taken into consideration. All of the cluster B personality disorders that I work with in my, I'm both a Buddhist teacher and I offer counseling to roughly 40 people at any given time, and I work with a lot of people with cluster B personality disorders, anxious attachment, um, and uh, OCD, uh, self-harm, and so forth. And what I've seen is that every disorder stems from an unmet need to be seen that has thus given, uh, created a lifetime of uh, alternative measures we take to be seen and recognized by people. Some of us are narcissistic. We call attention to all of our successes because without doing so, we believe we'll be overlooked. Some of us have histrionic personalities where we believe we won't be seen unless we amplify all of our illness, sickness, pains in our body, emotions. Some of us will be antisocial. We'll only, some children only believe they get seen by breaking the rules of the household, throwing spitballs at the teacher, etc. Or spitting spitballs, one wouldn't throw them. Uh, and borderline resorts to the expression of anger to be seen and drama. And then there are some cases where people will have all four, such as the President of these United States. <laughs> so uh, not only will personality disorders like cluster Bs develop, but look at OCD, which is, uh, affects a large number of people. Um, the child that cannot meaningfully uh, reliably sense or understand the actions of a parent will start to develop routines to give it a sense of control. The child may first stop walking on cracks, may first stop uh, or turn on and off light switches. Children will very often count or recite the alphabet backwards. And then these routines, which are desperate attempts to read gain a sense of control over its environment because it feels none in its family system, will begin to develop adult routines of cleaning, ordering, numbering, etc. Maladaptive coping strategies develop when we don't feel seen. We will deflect our anger onto others, meaning we will take out our anger at one parent or one sibling or one core attachment on innocent victims. Many men brutally uh, incur violence against helpless people, bullying, as a way to express the drama and the violence in a house and a job site uh, as a kind of not very serious aside, I grew up in a, in a violent alcoholic household, and my mom 
uh, desperately tried to uh, find me a good school because she could sort of tell that the emotional turmoil in the household was uh, playing, was being internalized by me. And so she thought it was going pretty well. This was the last school that she tried. She tried a number and they all rejected me out of hand. And uh, I finally went to one school and I seemed to be playing well with the other kids. I was five, this was kindergarten. She turned away for one moment and when she turned back, I had taken a big toy truck and was slamming this little girl's toy repeatedly and screaming and she was terrified. And so that's like deflected anger. We can develop tools to stop emotions from being expressed. So some people will uh, develop lifelong problems with abdominal distress, backaches which come from feelings of anxiety, muscle tension in the jaw can come about through repressed feelings of anger, tightness in the shoulders, etc. That's called somaticizing, when we clench down to hold our emotions internally and try to prevent them from being expressed via the vagal vagus nerve. So Robin Dunbar proposes, he's a great evolutionary psychologist, that um, we all need three types of friendships or bonds to survive and have emotional health in the world. The first type is the communal or tribal bonds. We need to feel there's a place where we can go where we're surrounded by other people who are, who are working on the same issues towards the similar goals, or at least a place where we feel safe amongst others. It doesn't matter who the people are there. So if you go to a refuge recovery or an Al-Anon meeting or a, a Dharma punks group or another Buddhist group or a, a Hindu curtain chanting, just being around people, a tribal connection, Dunbar argues is one of the reasons why the human brain is so complex. The second type of connection we need are core friends who will be there when we express our authentic, spontaneous, non-filtered uh, emotional states. And the third, many of us, not all of us, need a kind of uh, uh, partner to make us feel that if we are sick or ill or abandoned or rejected by a tribe or friends become unavailable, that our needs will still be met. If we don't get these needs, uh, instead of expressing our anger, sadness, fear, loneliness, we will have a tendency to socially withdraw. We will not feel safe amongst strangers. We will not feel confident to uh, explore the world. If we do have secure attachment, we will feel confident in expressing to friends and to others our authentic states of being. We won't be prone towards over-self-reliance and withdrawal. We won't be prone to addiction, because addiction is an attempt to replace other people with substances or behaviors. When people addictively eat, 
It's because they come home, they feel lonely, they feel disconnected, and the food gives them that sense of being cooked for, cared about. So it's creating a sense of being loved. The scary thing is that longitudinal studies show that the infant's attachment style at age one and a half is determined by the strange test. They take a little baby and they put it in a room with a stranger and then the mother eventually leaves the baby with the stranger and if the baby, uh, after crying at the mother's separation, turns and bonds with the stranger, then that infant is secure because it expects the mother to return so its tears only last for so long, and because it has a good relationship with its mother, it expects strangers to be kind as well. But if the caregivers are not reliable, the child might be anxious. It might wind up bereft by the mother's disappearance, clinging for any sign that she'll return. She won't feel secure in the knowledge that the mother is coming back, and therefore she will not connect with the stranger. And in her future life, she will not feel confident exploring the world or stating her needs or feeling a sense of agency in relationships. If she is avoidant attachment, she's given up on caretaking. She might very well not care that the mother has left and not care about the stranger and go off to play with toys in the corner of the room. 80% of us maintain our same core attachment style from one and a half to age 40, i.e. for the rest of our lives. The 20% who do change their attachment style, about 5% of those do because they go into therapy or they wind up in a secure relationship and then they change their attachment style for the better. Unfortunately, 15% due to traumas and additional life wounds and abandonment, their attachment styles move from secure to anxious or avoidant or disorganized. Eventually, the child learns language and that creates a diminution of the right hemisphere which was in control during these core years and recording all of the experiences in creating what become our emotional beliefs that will guide us through life. And then we become primarily left hemispheric. We, consciousness literally migrates at age four from the right to the left. And we start using inner chatter as a way to repress difficult, painful emotions. Even pleasant emotions we begin to repress using language. The left hemisphere interpreter, which turns all experience into words, is there prior, primarily to make sense of what's going on, even when there is no sense to it, but to also pull attention away from our full embodied, our embodied state of being and to bring us into a land of conceptual representation. 
Language, when it does work, gives us a sense of control because we can plan schedules. We know where we might be next Tuesday at 3 o'clock or next Thursday at 1. It gives us a sense of predictability. It gives us a sense that we have some agency control of our destinations. We, it gives us a sense that we can figure out everything because we can represent it in ideas and then turn it into plans. We rely on thought eventually to steer our behavior rather than relying on the expression of our authentic emotional states to connect us securely with others. The more we become left-brain dominant, we will be guided by this hemisphere away from securely expressing emotions as a way to establish security and connection and safety, and we will be pushed towards self-reliance. That is what the left hemisphere prioritizes across species. The right hemisphere in birds, rabbits, primates all across is broad, aware of what's going on in the present moment and just looks for secure attachments, the sense of threats and attachments. The left hemisphere in all these species is always focused on accumulating in birds, its berries and twigs, in rabbits, it might be other cabbage, I suppose, or, or I don't know what they eat, uh, carrots, uh, so in our, when we become bound to this cognitive approach to life, we are not only representing experience and language, but we are being guided towards a vastly more self-reliant, isolated, disconnected um, state of mind that prioritizes individualism, competition over vulnerable core embodied expression. We become reliant on texting as a way to express ourselves and only feel comfortable when we're texting. We don't feel comfortable anymore on the phone because our voice, which carries so much emotional expression, can be heard. So we, the left hemisphere, prioritizes that disconnection of intimacy, that disconnection from vulnerability, and wants the disembodied representation that happens on social media, ch chat, uh, texting, and so forth. It's all about collecting resources, toys, tools. It loves digital ga gadgets. And the left hemisphere is completely indifferent to nature, natural things, and to the feeling of communal attachment. The left hemisphere loves control and detests any sense of vulnerability, especially the natural, unguided, unguarded, vulnerable uh, uh, manifestation of core emotional states. Without balance, it pushes us to a busy life of seeking our security not from our connection with others, but through financial security. It is disinterested in any calm connection and appreciation of the body or the, mid or the natural world. Relying on thought, we will compete 
for attention at the expense of expressing again those core authentic needs. We will be prone, as I said, to social withdrawal, excessive self-reliance, and we'll give up connecting and offering soothing support and encouragement for both others and eventually even ourselves. So, the end result of this is that we develop an internal conflict that lies at the core of almost all of our suffering, what Gendlin called the felt sense versus the self-concept. The felt sense is everything that spontaneously arises in our bodies, our inclinations, our, uh, our the way we breathe, the way we feel in our abdomens and our chest, the lump in our throat, the catch in our voice, the shakiness, the tears that form in the corner of our eyes, the unguarded smile that comes out in situations where we're supposed to be serious and vice versa. So that's the felt sense. But the self-concept is every idea and learning that we've developed that has taught us how to survive and be seen in a positive way by others. And that, that self-concept or that mask, when it begins to experience that our felt sense experience is beginning to push itself through the cracks when we can no longer keep our loneliness, our sadness, our grief at bay, what we experience is anxiety. The actual term for this anxiety is neurotic anxiety, the fear that there is something dark in me, something awful that me, that if I'm not always polite and in control and following the rules and showing myself as taking care of others and being involved and, and doing what I should be doing, that, uh, that anxiety believes that if anybody sees that true, underlying, authentic, untamed part of myself, I will be rejected, I will be abandoned, I will be deemed unlovable. I will be deemed unworthy and no one will want to be with me. And the tragedy is, is that as we at all costs repress these core difficult feelings, all of the vital messages for our survival are lost. When we suppress anger, we lose the ability to set boundaries in our relationships. So many of the people I work with who I push towards Al-Anon have lost the ability due to family systems that punished anger, have lost the, feeling to, the ability to feel their anger and thus cannot safely set boundaries in their relationships. And they wind up with people who transgress all the time. People who suppress their grief cannot intimately connect with another because they have not learned or made any sense, emotional sense, of the disconnection. People who suppress their fear are drawn again and again to dangerous, threatening contexts because that's what they were told by their family systems life is like. And they constantly feel um, 
uncertain, uncomfortable. People who suppress their loneliness fail to understand it's a message to connect with others again securely. All of our emotions are not mistakes. There is not one single mistaken emotion any human being has. To the degree that we repress and suppress those emotions, we can wind up in adult life with the emotions of a child, which happens all the time. But those emotions are pushing and expressing our core needs. And when we meet our core needs in relationships by feeling our feelings and our internal states, the way we breathe, the way we, our bodies are held, the way we, uh, our states of attention, then once we get our needs met, then our needs begin to grow up and become more adult because we've made the inner child feel secure. So it's a dynamic process that's never stuck. It's always a meaningful exchange. So given all that I've talked about, the need for attachment, the need to be securely seen, the need to establish bonds where um, we are appreciated, encouraged, feel soothed at times, you might well ask, okay, so what are we doing here? Why are we sitting in silence? Why are we going through these days of not connecting. The point is that in a silent retreat, we start by putting aside all of the distractions that we have relied on to repress, suppress the addictions, the distractions, the ingrained habits, the managers, as it's known in IFS and firefighters. We put aside all of those behaviors and addictions that we rely on to not feel the vulnerable, true, core, vital, embodied self. And then what we do by disconnecting from others, from not talking, is we agitate all the emotions we've abandoned we put the fire on them, we take them from the back burner, and we begin to bring them to a subtle boil so that in these few days we can bring all that we've abandoned back to a place where it can be felt and connected with. Through the breathing, through feeling internal states in the body, through nonverbal mind states, that express emotion through attention, whether it's an angry state of attention or a craving or a sad or lonely or distracted attention. So we are repairing all, hopefully, or at least beginning the repair of all the emotional wounds, the core emotional wounds in mindfulness. The entire point is not just to have a pleasant meditation. The entire point is to befriend ourselves, to finally give ourselves that core caregiving, love, appreciation, kindness, empathy that we've been craving all of our life. And in some cases, we got. And in many cases, for some of us, we didn't. It's a way to heal in doing this, 
all of mindfulness insists on the exact qualities that we would want from a caregiver. We're developing an internal awareness that is the same as an ideal caregiver. We are empathetic. We are non-judgmental with ourselves. We are kind. We are appreciative. When we feel down, we are encouraging. When we feel angry, we see that, and we ask ourselves, what do you need to feel safe? When we are upset or lonely or bored, we talk to that inner child, and we soothe it, and we connect, and we feel it. We never do this as a thought, cognitive approach. It's not like a conversation. It's the core wounds, abandoned needs, that what we could call that uh, embodied self needs to be felt, not conceptualized in any way. Eventually, there'll come a time, maybe uh, tonight or whenever you feel ready for it, where we'll investigate what is called the fourth foundation, and at that point, we turn to look and observe the way we interpret our experience, what the Buddha called dhammas. These interpretations, once we've addressed and connected with the core feelings that have been awaiting our have been awaiting to be seen for so many years. Once we've reconnected with some of those feelings, it comes time to investigate how we've been framing and interpreting our experience. Whether we are prone to constantly compare ourselves with others, to judge ourselves against unrealistic expectations. In cognitive behavioral therapies, which are similar to what the Buddha called for in the fourth foundation, the understanding is the way we frame or interpret or turn our experience into words can also create so much suffering in our life. I'll give you an example based on a famous example by Albert Ellis. Suppose you're on a line for food and somebody before you takes the very last bit of kimchi making this context specific. <laughs> now, you could look at that person and have the belief that they don't care about you, and then you could take that belief and spin it out into a set of language about people are so uncaring these days, why couldn't they share, what's, what's, what am I, chopped liver, you know, why don't I get a break? Or we could simply assume that they didn't see us and that more kimchi is coming. The degree of suffering and mental agitation that follows that simple belief is vastly different. The real example that I'm basing this on is Albert Ellis says you're walking down the street, you see someone, you wave, they don't wave at you, you could interpret it as they're dissing you, in which case your mind will fill up with uh, vitriol, uh, outrage, inner speech making about people these days, yuppies or hipsters. 
or hippies, I don't know. Or you could simply believe that your friend was busy and didn't see you, in which case there's no suffering. In almost all cases, the simplest, shortest, non-personal approach to interpreting experience is the healthier, more skillful one. The moment we we start to take experience personally, begin to identify with it, begin to turn it into ongoing spiels, the more our interpretation is unskillful. The more our interpretations encourage a calm, curious observance of what's happening rather than any internal diatribe or any sense that this is happening to me, the more it encourages a uh, sense of uh, not feeling threatened or projecting the experience will last or believing any experience is an indictment of who I am. For instance, we sit in a meditation we fall asleep, we wake up, we might feel that some sense of failure doing it wrong. We might feel when we open a door or do something on retreat, we're doing it wrong. And then turn that into a whole framing experience of self-indictment. As the Buddha basically said in the Sabhasava Sutta, the key with thought is being detached and disinclined to view anything in terms of one's identity. All experience is simply passing, not lasting. And the more we curiously investigate and appreciate both what's happening around us and what's happening inside of us, we can begin to rebalance the mind away from the competition, the isolation, the self-reliance, the withdrawal, the suspicion, the doubt, the lack of belief will get our needs met. And we can begin to rebalance ourselves towards some kind of true, uh, vulnerable, uh, unguarded, unfiltered, embodied expression of that core, deep, true needs that we have. So that's what I believe we're doing here. I believe we're doing nothing shorter than the most important work we could be doing in terms of self-healing and towards our psychological health then first, in these first few days, reconnecting with the embodied right hemispheric inner child that has been waiting so patiently for years to be seen and heard and taken hold of and uh, in an unrejecting, loving way. And uh, so I am deeply grateful for your practice, for listening. We're going to take a seven-minute break.
and then Melissa and I will be back to answer any questions that might have come up during the day. Thank you.